1: In the year 2000, the Coen brothers and star George Clooney gave the
0: world a winding tale of a man determined to find his way back home. In 2023, we take a return trip to Kentucky for some cask strength goodness. The film is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The whiskey is Maker's Mark Cask Strength. And we'll review them both.
1: This is
0: the Film and, and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. And Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, Brad, we're kicking off three weeks of the Coen Brothers, specifically three of their broad kind of farcical comedies. When you pick a a directing duo like the Coen Brothers, it's kind of hard to narrow down. They have such a great filmography. I think this is our third Coen Brothers film on the show. And so because of that, we'd already knocked out Fargo and No Country for Old Men. And we were like, well, let's do some of the comedies. I'm really excited to get into these because if I'm being frank, I think the Cohen comedies are the ones that I struggle the most to put into context. I don't know if that makes sense, but like with their dramas, they're very clear about what the message is. And with the comedies, it just always seems like they, uh they're worshipping randomness and chaos and chance. And at the end of every one of these movies, just like at the end of every Shakespeare comedy, everybody gets married. At the end of every Cohen comedy, somebody just like throws their hands up in the air and says like, what was this all about? And someone else is like, I don't know. And then the movie ends. And I'm always like, I don't get it. Is the movie about the randomness? Is that the point? And and so, yeah, I'm rambling at this point, but I'm excited to watch these three movies and try to figure out what it's all about, Brad.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, the ending of this movie as, as we get into spoiler territory very quickly here, it's, it's just perfect. The way, you know, most adventures are like, Hey, somebody gives you a quest. And, you know, in this case, it's go get our wedding ring and he goes and gets it and, you know, endures this flood. And oh it, it actually wasn't in the roll top desk where I told you it was. It, you know, it was it might have been under the mattress or something. But we can't get <laughs> married until you get it.
0: <laughs> and it's yeah. just it's brilliant and and funny. And this is going to be a recurring theme as we talk about the Coens, but one of the themes of their whole filmography is the importance of randomness and chance and the way that unpredictable things happen to, you know, the best laid plans go awry. It happened in Fargo. It happened in No Country for Old Men. Like, it's very obviously the Coen brothers' calling card. But it's it's so interesting sometimes to watch them, I don't know, try to have it both ways, where they, like, worship chaos, but they also have, like, a very clear moral point to make. And I think this movie, it definitely, like, if, if those are the two extremes, it definitely falls more on the randomness and chance side. Like, there are definitely some some morals to the story here. But at the end of the day, it's kind of just like, yeah, we're just going to make a farcical adaptation of the Odyssey and set it in Mississippi. And it's going to be really funny. And that's good enough. Yeah. I mean, I think there might be a little more to the film than that. Sure. But, you know, we we can get into that as as we move ahead. (laughs) All right. For John into the unknown. I, you know, I feel like I've already gotten us off track here a little bit. Uh, How are you doing, man? Oh, dude, I'm doing killer. Yeah, it's uh, it's early January. We've gotten all the holidays
1: behind us. Uh, my wife and I are like, as most people do, we are dieting. We are staying away from sugar. We're like staying away from spending money because <laughs> we're just like for, for us. <laughs> You're just it's, depriving yourself of every good thing in life right now. Uh, yes, because <laughs> starting on November 2nd, we go. Birthday, birthday, Thanksgiving, birthday, wedding anniversary, Christmas, New Year's. Oh gosh, yeah, and it's just two straight months of, of decadence. Yeah, wow,
0: well,
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. It's oh, just man. it's just a lot. So January is a nice nice month to like not travel anywhere, not
0: talk to anybody. Don't spend any money. It's a good time. Well, I'm glad you're making time to talk to me and to Film and Whiskey Nation on this fine evening. Brad, before we jump into America's favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains, I want to give a quick plug for our Patreon, patreon.com slash whiskey, where you can support the podcast. Listen, guys, it is uh, it is not free for us to produce this podcast. We're buying whiskeys. We're we're expending our time. It takes me about five hours to edit every episode of this podcast. And if our show is bringing value into your life, if you listen to us, you know weekly or if, even if this is your first time, we would really appreciate it if you took a moment to check out the three different tiers of sponsorship for our show. You can sponsor us at a three, five, or seven dollar a month tier. At each level, you get tons of bonus perks. Uh, you get access to a special Discord server that Brad and I are on literally every day, talking to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation. So please, for three bucks a month, you too can become a member of the most exclusive discord server there is Mm. check us check us out on (laughs) patreon.com slash film whiskey bob if there's a
1: first time listener out there that has listened to us for five minutes Mm. and they were like you know what i'm gonna do now three bucks a month give these guys money
0: then i you can i will be flabbergasted yeah yeah but but it's going to happen. I'm going to speak it into existence right now, man. Dude, yeah, you you speak your truth, Bob. <laughs> All right, let's get into Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, this was not your first time seeing Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I say that because we've had some discussion about this movie before.
1: Yeah, I the first time I ever saw this movie... I was pre- this is one of those uh experiences where you go over to like family's house and they put on a movie and your parents are kind of like probably didn't want you to watch it, but they're not going to be like sticklers, mm-hmm. you know, while they're with your cousins and stuff. So I remember being in fifth grade. So I was probably 10 I'd probably just turned 11 years old. Actually, I had because we were in California visiting my cousin And it had been the first time I'd ever flown, and it was just this awesome trip. And we watched Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And let me tell you, Bob, as an 11-year-old, this movie makes little to no sense. (laughs) And yet, I still remember going back to it in college at some point with a ton of fond memories. Mm. I just remember thinking this was a really funny movie. So all that to say, this is probably my third or fourth time watching it. And uh, I, I just, this is probably one of my higher rated comedies.
0: I I think this movie is so, so funny. Well, I have many things to say, but before we get into those things, Brad, you have 60 seconds on the clock to try to break down the sheer, I don't know, chaos of this movie and go. Go read the Odyssey, man. (laughs) Just just do it real quick. Have you ever read the Odyssey? I have not read the Odyssey. And the funny thing is neither had the Coen brothers when they wrote this movie. (laughs) <laughs> so, so uh, I probably got like thirty seconds left. Yeah, go ahead. Uh,
1: George Clooney is trying to escape the prison yard, and he brings his chain gang mates with him, and they go on adventures, and they get betrayed by a bunch of different people, and they make a bunch of money along the way and lose it, and they somehow become famous singers. And in the end, there was no treasure to be found other than that of George finding his way back to
0: his wife and kids. The real treasure was the friendships we made along the way. Am I right? I mean, that actually that actually might be the case here. (laughs) Okay, I want to go back to something we said before Brad explains. And then you got to remind me to come back to the thing about the Odyssey. So earlier you were talking about, you know, seeing this movie when you were like 11 years old. It came out, you know, when we were, I guess, 10 And all I remember about this movie is that it didn't make a ton of money at the box office, but it kind of like snaked its way into white people culture in in a very interesting way that things used to do in the late 90s and early 2000s. Like, do you remember for a year when everyone got really big into like swing dancing again in the late 90s? I did not. You remember that song like Zoot Suit Riot that came out? Like. Everyone was into swing dancing for like a year. And then everyone was done with that. And then it was like Ricky Martin came out and we were all into like vaguely Latin sounding music. Mm -hmm. And then this movie comes out and the soundtrack to this movie goes freaking bananas. It gets nominated for a ton of Grammys. It actually might have won album of the year at the Grammys. I can't quite remember, but, uh, you know, I'm a man of constant sorrow ends up getting radio play on, (laughs) on mainstream radio stations. It was a very weird time. It hit number one on the billboard. Yeah, dude. Yeah. So that's what I'm wild. saying. All I remember about this movie, having not seen it when I was young, was the the weird cultural impact that it had far after the movie was out of theaters because yeah. this was not like an Oscar movie. So the, the pop culture impact was mostly from the music of it. And I just like every time I think about this movie, I think about the fact that like I felt like I was surrounded by it. In every facet except for the movie itself. Dude, do you want to know why the music got popular?
1: (laughs) Because it's really good. Because it freaking slaps, bro. (laughs) It's
0: really good. It's absolutely incredible. Do you remember it having like a a moment there in pop culture?
1: No, I had zero uh, connection to pop culture. I don't remember the Ricky Martin moment. I don't remember the swing dance year (laughs) of 98. (laughs) Bob, Bob yeah. apparently remembers it quite fondly. I do. I do. I was but... out there
0: out there swing dancing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, I uh, must not be quite as connected to pop culture as you, Bob. All
0: right. Well, I just made a really long rambling point for, for no payoff. <laughs> awesome. You're welcome. Um, Tell me about The Odyssey. So this is the thing. I've never read The Odyssey, and I'm going to be honest about that. It's one of those things that I probably should have read at some point, but- you know, you know, the general bones of the story and, and the word Odyssey has entered into the vernacular. Like we understand what it means, mm-hmm. you know, and just in researching the movie, I, I remember that there is a Cyclops in the Odyssey and I remember the sirens. And so, like, I, I can tell what the beats are that they're hitting. But having not read the Odyssey, I was really tickled to see that the Coen's very prominently said, hey, we also didn't read the Odyssey we just kind of figured like everyone knows this stuff. So we're just going to make a story based on that. And to the point where the only person on set that had read the Odyssey was the actor Tim Blake Nelson. So they were kind of just like bouncing ideas off him. Like, hey, does this sound vaguely <laughs> like the Odyssey? <laughs> and and I think it's so great because the Coens are in a lot of ways, I think the great chroniclers of American stories. And I don't mean like, quote unquote, like the great American novel. But all of their stories seem like these American fables or fairy tales where the average person gets taught a moral lesson or there is some sort of like, you know, the the dim-witted person gets in over their head and it becomes a cautionary tale. Every single one of their movies deals with life in America in a really unique and an honest way. And I think that it is hilarious that the American adaptation of the Odyssey is quintessentially American in that the guys who are adapting it never read the Odyssey. Like, what could be more American than that? <laughs> I mean, you are 100% correct. Uh, the Odyssey
1: is a wonderful story, Bob, and you hmm. should go read it sometime. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I in my ninth grade English class, I kept telling my teacher, Mrs. Fitzsimmons, that the books we were reading were were crappy. And so she was like, "Fine, if you go read the Odyssey and the Iliad, then I'll let, and write a report on each one. Then I'll just let you not read anything else the rest of the semester." <laughs> and I I think she thought it would take me the rest of the semester to read them both. I read them each in like a week and wrote my report, and didn't have to do anything the rest of my English class. <laughs> that is so. the most Brad G
0: story I've ever heard. <laughs> right down to where you told the person who was more educated than you, hey, the things you pick are crappy. Where have I, I, I mean, heard that before? I, uh, Who's to say? <laughs> <laughs> all right, man, let's get into talking about the movie itself. And I guess let's start with the performances, because we're going to talk about the Cohen of it all here in a little bit. The star of this movie is George Clooney. This was his first collaboration of four to this point with the Coen brothers. George Clooney, one of the most charismatic and delightful screen presences of the last, I don't know, 40 years. Like he's Mm -hmm. just when I when I watch a George Clooney movie now, I realize how far we've come or how far we've fallen, I guess, in the last 10, (laughs) 12 years of cinema that like we just don't have leading men anymore. Nope. No, like, and like I, who could be in this movie today that, that would, would have be, the sort of charisma of a George Clooney?
1: Oh, I mean, uh, Chris Hemsworth. Maybe no, not Hemsworth. Uh, who, who's uh, the main bad guy in the first Knives Out? Oh,
0: Chris Evans. Evans. And thank he's you. too. He's too pretty. And I mean, George Clooney's pretty too, but he he makes yeah. himself a buffoon. I don't see yeah, Chris no. Evans making himself a buffoon.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think that the, the interesting thing for me about George Clooney is that I, you know, I grew up watching a lot of older movies with my dad and that included a lot of Cary Grant movies. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, because there's a lot more actors in general than there used to be. I don't know if George Clooney is quite as big of a star as Cary Grant was. But I feel like he is our closest analog to oh, somebody like Cary Grant in the modern era. Yeah. Just and that's, that's kind charming of charming and beautiful and has an
0: incredible stage presence and is self-deprecating. That's the thing mm-hmm. is like Cary Grant was able to to do a pratfall or to, mm-hmm. you know, to look like the idiot in a scene. I was just watching right. North by Northwest again the other day. And the scene at the beginning of the movie, right after he gets mistaken, for the spy and they dump a b- whole bottle of bourbon into him and he, he plays drunk for the next 15 minutes of the movie. It's just delightful. He's so good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. George Clooney it, like, is frequently compared and called this generation's Cary Grant. And I think for good reason, because he's equal parts dapper and ridiculous. And I, yeah. I love that about him. Dude, the way that he takes the hit from John
1: Goodman, like he just kind of sits there and is like so utterly confused as to what's happening. He's like, "Wait a second, we were having a conversation, and that's where I when succeed and excel." When
0: Goodman hits Tim Blake Nelson with the with the branch, <laughs> and, and he's just eating corn, and he goes, "What's going on, Big Man?" Like <laughs> just completely blank. And then the way that
1: that Tim Blake Nelson like runs after him screaming like a banshee and like jumps onto his neck. (laughs) and George is just sitting there watching the whole thing.
0: Oh, man, it's brilliant. So I think that's a good, you know, we're, we're still talking performances here, but I think that's kind of a good place to talk about the structure of the movie a little bit. And because it is, you know, I guess episodic is the right way to describe it. Like, it's just a collection of little vignettes of them stumbling into a town or upon a person, and you watch their little storyline play out with that person, and then they say goodbye, and then they go on to the next thing. And this is something that the Coens will come back to time and time again. They do it, I guess, the most explicitly in their most recent movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is just, I don't know how many, six or seven completely unconnected vignettes. Hmm. and. And, like, you kind of get that here a little bit, and I think that's why <laughs> that's why it's so hard for me to, to feel like this movie has a point, and yet it provides so much great comic payoff, because every scene or every vignette kind of builds to a punchline or some kind of ridiculous slapsticky moment. And in a lot of cases, you know, Clooney and or Tim Blake Nelson are the people that execute that. Yeah, Tim Blake Nelson
1: is just incredible in this movie. I I think he might be my favorite performance. Mm. He just has a way of being so incredibly sincere with every delivery that he has for every line that I just I love him. I I think John Turturro also does a spectacular job. But I I don't know. I guess if I just had to boil it down, Bob. I think that these three actors, Turturro, Clooney, and Nelson, are incredible together.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's such a great pairing. I think this is only our second John Turturro movie after uh, Do the Right Thing, and which really sucks because he's such a great actor and he's been in so many good things. But it's so good to see him again here. And he's one of those actors that has such a distinct look to him that I don't think he gets enough credit for how differently he plays each role. like. You're so used to being like, oh, it's John Turturro. He looks like that. He's like, you know, he's like a a, a tall, stretched out Steve Buscemi. Like you're just, <laughs> ah! you know what I mean? And he and both yeah. of those actors, I feel like, have so much nuance and depth to their performances. But because you know they just look like what they looked like in the last movie, you kind of forget how much nuance is there. And it's kind of the same thing with Tim Blake Nelson too. They're just really, really good actors. And yet the Coen's play up the oddities of their physical appearance here, as they do in a lot of their movies.
1: Yeah, that's something that uh, Haley said to me a few times. She's like, do you think that these people just know that they are not very attractive people, <laughs> <laughs> especially in the in the hog wallop scene where Turturro is there with his yeah. cousin? Yep. And she's like, she, she literally just said, she's like, do you think they just put out a casting call for like. Tall, skinny, ugly
0: men. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, they probably did. (laughs) Dude, your wife pulls absolutely no punches. Like, no, she doesn't think someone's attractive. Then like, it is a fact that that person is ugly. Yeah, no, she (laughs) is uh, a little bit ruthless. (laughs) Truly. All right. So that's our main trio. And then there's a whole cast of supporting characters who I don't even know if I want to call them supporting characters because they're mostly like cameos. We've already mentioned one of them. And it is frequent uh, collaborator with the Coens, John Goodman. I think, Brad, this is our first ever John Goodman movie, which is even no. crazier to say, because uh, I don't think we've reviewed Monsters, Inc. on this podcast yet. And so that was the only other so. one that I could think of. John Goodman is a guy that every so often, you know, when I'm scrolling mindlessly on Twitter, that somebody just reminds the rest of the world john goodman's never been up for an oscar john goodman's never won an oscar he's one of our great living actors and uh this is this is no different this is john goodman playing ridiculous and playing intimidating and it is just wonderful i think he has one of the best voices in hollywood
1: Mm -hmm. like he just has this this depth and rumbliness to it that just like reverberates through your soul. And it's absolutely incredible. What do you think of the actual performance here? I think he does a great job. I, I think that with the small role that they gave him, he really has a way of just drawing you in and sucking the camera away from Clooney. Hmm. And, you know, and, and he says it from the start. He he basically tells him that he's a fast talker, that he sells Bibles That, you know, he the the thing that I didn't understand, I was like, I don't know how often this would happen, but like the idea of somebody coming up to you and and being like, hey, do you want to just take your lunch out and have a picnic with me? Mm -hmm. It seems like a strange type of thing, (laughs) but in the Coen brothers world, why not? But no, I I think I think Goodman is is really, really wonderful in this. I, I just don't think they give him a ton to work with. Right. I do have a question for you, though, Bob. Yeah, go for it. Papio Daniel. Yep. Is is he in Monsters, Inc.?
0: Charles Durning?
1: Yeah, I feel like he's the uh, the bad guy in the end. The no, guy that was, runs the company.
0: No, that's James Coburn. That's the guy uh, that was in The Great Escape uh, that plays oh, Water Noose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Charles Durning, this is probably like our third or fourth Charles Durning movie. Great character actor. Uh, you might remember him as like the head cop or FBI guy from Dog Day Afternoon. Mm-hmm. He is also the head cop that they kind of screw over at the end of the movie, The Sting. Uh, oh, I don't know if okay. you've ever seen the movie Tootsie. He has a great role in that as well. Yeah, and I think he's so good in this movie. In fact, Brad, I was just looking as you were as you were uh, talking here to try to find the other guy, like the guy he's running against, Homer Stokes. Oh, ho- yeah, Homer His Stokes. His name is Wayne Duvall. I actually uh-huh. think he might have been my favorite performance in this whole movie. Because- <laughs> He is he's so believable in that role of super slimy politician Mm -hmm. and and like to the point where it's not even a funny farce of a politician. It's like a believable slimy politician.
1: Yeah, the when he grabs the mic and starts like, you know, telling the crowd that they need to arrest the soggy bottom boys. You just feel the ooze, just the like like coming off of him to a point where you're like, oh, I could see a politician in 1930s Mississippi saying these exact same like this
0: doesn't feel like a movie anymore. (laughs) All right. So because there are so many people to talk about, I guess the only other one that we probably should mention is Holly Hunter, who plays George Clooney's estranged wife. She is freaking wonderful. We will see her again next week in Raising Arizona, where she gives one of the best Cohen performances ever. She's really good in this movie. But again, you're right, Brad. I don't even want to say that these actors are not given a lot to work with because they are given fully realized characters. It's just that they're asked to make a cameo and then say goodbye. And yeah. so, like, I actually think it, like, to the credit of the actors, they leave quite an impression. But they leave a five-minute impression, if that makes sense. No,
1: 100%. I I think that what the Coen brothers do best in this film is because they use this uh, almost a serialized vignette structure, they allow each section of the movie to shine for what it needs to be. And they give each actor in those sequences opportunities to really dig their teeth into the parts that they have and then they move on mm-hmm. and you know and they're totally fine and I, and i think that the Coen brothers just really masterfully weave their way through the story with all these different really phenomenal
0: actors if you had to pick like which vignette or which i don't know um cameo what part of the movie is the funniest subplot to you oh man what's the funniest subplot
1: i don't know if it's necessarily a subplot but the, the the way the dapper Dan hair net every time he wakes up goes boom oh, my hair, my hair. <laughs> that that kills me the way he says
0: damn we're in a tight spot over and over over, I, and read, over. those are literally two of my notes like I'm, I'm crossing them out now because I don't need to mention them anymore but the whole They're scene in the so drugstore where he's I don't want fop damn it I'm dapper Dan man it's it's so
1: good. I, I like, I happen to like the, the
0: fragrance of my, my thing. That's half the reason I use it. I think one of my favorite lines in the whole movie, and I guess subplots then is when they get picked up by the bank robber and they're just driving (laughs) down the road with them. And it's the day after Delmer and Pete have gotten saved and baptized and, and they're just like sitting next to a giant bag of money. And he's (laughs) like, Oh, I guess you guys aren't bad men. And he's like, well, we used to be bad men, but now we're saved. He's like, oh, that's nice. And he like leans out the door and says, Hey, give me that gun. <laughs> and he's handing the gun out the window to him. And he goes, What line of work are you in, George? <laughs> and then they just cut to a shot of him shooting a machine gun at the police officers that are tailing them. It made me laugh so hard. And I love oh, that man. I love that the Coens, when they're not being mean to their characters, because I feel like there are a couple movies that they make where I I struggle with how mean they are to the characters, Mm -hmm. but this is not one of them. I feel like they have lighthearted fun with how dim-witted these people are, but there are certain aspects of their personalities that they take really, really seriously. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit in the back half, but I think it's especially poignant the way that they really take Pete and Delmer's morals and convictions seriously, even if they Mm -hmm. are the dim-witted ones and they show that Clooney is the one who really has no beliefs and no convictions and he's suffering the most because of it. And so I love that they balance out the sort of dim-witted one-liners with a real respect for and care for the people behind those lines.
1: Yeah, I mean the when when Everett and Delmar, you know, finally reunite with Pete who's, you know, back on the chain gang and they free him, And they bring him out like the the remorse and anguish that John Turturro shows, you know, because his character has ratted on his friends. It it brings the entire movie together. It it makes all of these journeys that they've been on feel authentic because he really hates the fact that he ratted out his friends. Mm -hmm. And I think that you're right that the Coen's allow their actors to portray their characters in such a sincere and honest manner that the funny parts are funny because it's who they really are and yet the serious parts are are serious and important because it really is these characters embodying the world that they're living
0: in all right man i think before we get too far down this rabbit trail of doing deep deep analysis on this very silly movie We should hit pause and let's drink some whiskey. Today, we've got Maker's Mark Cask Strength in front of us. So what do you say we dive into this, Brad? Let's get to it. All right. Today, we are checking out Maker's Mark Cask Strength. Brad, I think this is the third expression of Maker's Mark that we've had on this show. We've done regular Maker's, I think. I know we did Maker's 46. With like one of our very first episodes ever. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever done regular Makers. I know. Okay. Yeah. I remember doing 46, but that might be it. Huh? Well, okay. So maybe this is just the second expression of Makers that we've done now. (laughs) It's been a long time is what I'm saying. This is probably the most popular weeded bourbon on the market. Now it's not the most sought after. That would be Weller, obviously, or, or Pappy. But this is, I would say pound for pound, Brad, like, or dollar for dollar. The the most popular one. This stuff is always on store shelves. It's flying off the shelves, and Beam Suntory got themselves into uh, playing with the big boys here by releasing a cask strength version of this. It's an ongoing release, so this is not any sort of special release. But it does always kind of jump around in proof point. I think it's like somewhere between 108 and 114 all the time. Uh, the the barrel that we are sampling from today comes from our friends Bourbon and Stuff. They sent us this sample. Gosh, Brad, a year and a half, two years ago now. We've been sitting on it for a a long time. Uh, And this one clocks in at 110.9 proof. So, I mean, Mm. let's just say 111 at this point. Maker's cask strength carries a 70% corn, 16% wheat, 14% malted barley mash bill. Uh, It's non age stated, so we're going to guess that it's at least four years old. Brad, I have no more to say about this. You have drunk it. (laughs) I have not. Let's get into trying it, man.
1: Yeah, the the nose on this has a lot of caramel. It gets into those beautiful weeded notes mm-hmm. of like cherry cola, yep. vanilla, and then for me, it it almost smelled like I took a handful of oats uh, out of like the the Quaker oats. <laughs> I was gonna say tin, but it's it's a cardboard cylinder. Uh, <laughs> it, it it's it's like you took out a handful of oats and just shoved your nose in it.
0: Yeah, this is real floral and really dusty. It's kind of what reminds me of like the what I used to call the Willet Funk. Like it's just got that really it, it just seems like if you could seal up rose petals in a really dusty house. That's what this kind of reminds <laughs> me of. It's not like musty. It doesn't smell dank or anything like that. But those those cherry notes are definitely there, Brad. And it's not like a jar of cherries and syrup. It's like a fresh dark cherry. Really, really mm. nice. Tons of wood on this, too. I wouldn't necessarily even say that it gives off like an oaky scent. Maybe it's cherry wood. Who knows? I have no idea. But it's wood, it's cherry, it's really floral, and it's dusty. I like it a lot. I'm gonna give it an eight and a half on the nose. Yeah, I give it a nine out of out of ten on the nose. Uh, as I
1: got into the palate, the cherry cola continued throughout for me, but then I got some dark chocolate, almost like a, a raisiny feel, and then a little bit of caramel to mix in with all mm-hmm. that. I thought this was a
0: really great palette, Bob. I gave it an eight and a half. Oh, this is really good, man. I don't know how to explain this, but it's really oily and also kind of thin. <laughs> I don't know like man how do I explain? One, this? one might say that that's antithetical Yeah it doesn't seem super Viscous okay like it and, and it's One of those things where the alcohol Is so prominent that you know how like The the really alcohol heavy Palettes seem thinner because they've Got that like like Spiciness to them mm-hmm. It's like that but then after I swallow It's not an aggressive Finish and it like coats my tongue Again so it's almost like the best of both Worlds I will say that the alcohol in this really does. It's really prickly. Uh, however, every note you gave is a fantastic note. Like that raisiny note you got. I almost get a little bit more prune than just like straight mm-hmm. raisin. Uh, but again, it's like unsweetened cherries and wood. And man, I'm trying to pinpoint what this reminds me of. I don't think it's its uh, Noah's Mill. What is this? It's super duper good. And like this is significantly better than I remember regular Maker's Mark being. Yeah, I'm gonna give this a nine out of ten. Yeah, I
1: for me it reminds me a tiny bit with all the cherry going on of like a Widow Jane. Mm. But yeah, I I really like this Bob uh, on the finish. The oak started to really come through. Cherry was still there, vanilla, and then it almost got a little bit like. Almost like a sarsaparillo root beer kinda kinda tanginess going Mm -hmm. on
0: that I was a really big fan of. Uh and I stuck it an eight and a half. That's a great note because it doesn't actually taste like root beer, but it tastes like what happens after you swallow a big gulp of root beer. It's it's Mm -hmm. really weedy and it's tangy. Tangy is a fantastic word for this. Like the oak doesn't turn bitter, it turns tangy, and there's like almost a wisp of smoke that comes out of it too on the finish. But again, mm-hmm. like it never turns bitter. And I think that's something that the last few whiskeys we've had over the last few weeks, I feel like the Oak on the, on both of those whiskeys, whatever they were, they turned bitter. This one doesn't turn bitter. It turns weedy. And I really like that. I'm once again, I'm going to give this, Oh gosh, an eight and a half out of 10. Yeah. On balance,
1: I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. I think this is really complex and flavorful
0: throughout the entire experience, Bob. I I am such a big fan of this. Yeah, man, I'm right there with you. I think I'm also going to give it a 9. I'm almost tempted to give it a 9.5. This is really, really good. Super consistent throughout. I would say that I would guess that this was higher than 110 if you just put it in front of me and didn't tell me the proof. It's a little bit aggressive with the alcohol. Not harsh. But just really prominent, like it leads with the alcohol. So if you're used to your high proof alcohols being more of a slow burn, this is not that this is like a firecracker. And I I really like it, but I think I'm trying to give a a bit of a disclaimer here. So it's not dinging anything for me, but I think I am just going to give it a nine out of 10 on the balance.
1: Yeah, that nine out of ten—that'll show them. Just, just a nine, (laughs) just a nine. (laughs) Bob, this whiskey will set you back in the grand old state of Ohio, forty-five dollars. This is a fantastic value at
0: forty-five dollars. Yeah, I I give an eight out of ten on value. I can't really think of a lot of whiskeys that retail for less than forty-five or at forty-five that I think are better than this. Like this is exactly right in line with uh, with a wild wild turkey, turkey. rare breed. Yeah, <laughs> rare breed. That's the only <laughs> other one that I, I mean because even like old forester nineteen twenty that's like sixty dollars now. Yep, and this is at least as good as that is, and it's yeah twenty dollars cheaper or fifteen dollars cheaper. Um, I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten. This is damn yeah. good. Yeah,
1: I'm a hundred percent with you. Nine out of ten. Uh, I am coming out to a
0: forty-four out of fifty, Robert. I am coming out to a forty-four out of fifty, Brad. Oh my gosh! It's pretty rare that we hit the exact same number. Yeah, this might be the third or fourth time. This is really freaking good. Yeah, yeah. And dude, I was just—I is... was just asking you off-air. This isn't a single barrel, right? I know it's called Cask Strength, but it doesn't say single barrel. This is a this no. is a blend. I don't know how big the batches are. But that actually encourages me, because if this was a single barrel, I mean, I would still obviously recommend buying and trying. But now that I know that it's a a batched whiskey, like, I assume that this is kind of what the palate is going to be like, or the flavor profile is going to be like pretty consistently. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Dude, I'm 100% in on this. Go buy yourself some Maker's Mark Cast Strength, everybody. Yeah. 88 out of 100,
0: one of our highest rated whiskeys of the season, Brad.
1: Yeah, for a while. I would say this is, but here's the thing. Not only is it one of our highest rated whiskeys, I think it might be one of our highest rated and most readily available Mm whiskeys that isn't going to be overpriced. Like, you're not going to see this in a, you know, non-controlled state for like $120. Right. And so I'm like, this seems like an easy pickup for anybody to keep on their shelf At all
0: times. All right, man. We are in a really good spot after this whiskey. Let's get back into talking about a Brother, Where Art Thou? What do you say? Yeah, let's get to it, man. All right, everybody. That was Maker's
1: Mark Cask Strength, a damn good whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. Yeah. I was, man. I I am very pleased right now. Yep. Yeah. Well, if you want to keep being pleased, you might not want to participate in our next segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. <laughs>
0: Two Facts and a Falsehood, where I had to bring in the world's leading expert on James Cameron to help me win last <laughs> week. Hey, you got it, though, man. I'm proud I, of hey, you. I do what it takes,
1: man. <laughs> All right, everybody. This is the section of the podcast where I, Brad G., present you, Robert Book. With two facts and one falsehood, but you think that they're all true, and you usually guess the wrong one. (laughs) I was going to say, I usually think none of them are true. That's the hard part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've actually just been making up all three facts
0: for months now. Well, luckily, I brought both Joel and Ethan Cohen into the room to help me sort these out. I go from the, oh, world's, man. the world's leading James Cameron expert to just actually getting the directors in here with me. <laughs> the, the, the world's leading <laughs> Coen brothers experts, the Coen brothers. All right, man. Hit me with these two facts and a falsehood. Let's see if I can parse out which one is false. All righty.
1: Originally, fact number one, originally, the Coen brothers wanted to write a, skit, a script based on a work of the brothers Grimm. However, after being stuck for a little while, their longtime collaborator, Carter Burwell, suggested Homer's Odyssey to them, uh, which, as you know, Bob, they had not read. But they took that idea, ran with it, and the script was quickly finished after that.
0: Hmm.
1: Fact number two, J.K. Simmons auditioned for multiple parts, but backed out when one of the characters or when the the character that the Cohen's were leaning towards casting him as was too similar to a racist character he played on the HBO show Oz. Fact number three, Sheriff Cooley is a tribute to Boss Godfrey played by Morgan Woodward, the sinister chain gang boss in Cool Hand Luke. Like Godfrey, Cooley's eyes are never seen and his mirrored sunglasses reflect his surroundings, often fire. In Cool Hand Luke, Boss Godfrey is referred to
0: as the devil by several of the prisoners. Hmm. I'm going to go with three as a fact. Two sounds very plausible. I'm leaning towards one as the falsehood. And the only reason why is in researching this movie, it seemed like the idea to make this be the Odyssey came about more accidentally. Like they were trying to just plan a three buffoons escape a prison gang. And then it became like, hey, this is about their journey to go back home. Let's just make it be the Odyssey. And so when you talk about them trying to do a Brothers Grimm thing and then flipping to the Odyssey, the other thing there is that Carter Burwell, I believe, is the composer of a bunch of their films. He's the he's the musician. Like, he writes the music um, he is so I don't know if they'd be going to him for advice on scripts. They might be. And I'm sure Carter Burwell is a very educated man. But number one is sticking out to me as probably the falsehood. I'm going to say one's the falsehood, Brad. And Bob, I, 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 go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> you are correct. Hey, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it, man. I'm so happy. <laughs> we had a really good whiskey and then I won. This is like, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great day. The day to beat all days. I what can't, a great start to the new year, I was going to say, I can't remember the last time that we had a really good whiskey followed by a two facts and a falsehood win for me. Yeah, Ed, that's uh, it's probably been a while, Bob. (laughs) This is the reason the Buckeyes lost. Oh, you know, I couldn't have all three things. It had to be. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right, man. Let's get back into talking about. Good episode. Yeah, right. (laughs) Let's go be sad and drink more whiskey. Let's get back into talking about, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Brad, we talked a little bit about some of the deeper themes that are going on here right before we went to break. I mentioned that I really liked that they portray. You know, George Clooney's compatriots as people who have real convictions and, you know, their their impulsive decision to go get baptized seems like it's being parodied in the moment. But then pretty immediately they have this great scene where they're all laying out by a campfire at night and they're talking about like, oh, what are you going to do with your share? And it's really reminiscent of like Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm-hmm. And they go around and talk about, like, what are we going to do? And it's really clear that John Turturro wants to be the kind of person that is respected and in a position of authority, not to be mean about it, but just because it's something he could never have as a person who had no means. And that uh, Tim Blake Nelson wants to go back and buy his family's farm. Like, these are very principled men. Dude, that, that felt so much like Grapes of Wrath. Oh, yeah. Like, he was the man who
1: had the speech given to him about the banks and the, you yes, know, they're, they're in New York. And like that
0: yeah. Yes, like, that was Tim Blake Nelson. And then they come back to George Clooney and they ask him, like, what do you want? And he's like, oh, I don't really want anything. And it it really demonstrates immediately that these two guys, no matter how we're portraying them, no matter how George Clooney is mercilessly mocking them, as not having any intelligence, they're the ones that actually have morals and have principles and are working towards mm-hmm. something. And Clooney's the one that's kind of adrift, and you can tell has a despair about him. And you find out later in the movie that he's been lying about it all, and he really does have a driving force. But in that moment, I really love the way that they really subtly set up you know, the, the trajectories of these characters.
1: Well, and I think that's kind of the whole drive and purpose of this movie is to set up the dichotomy, the the modern argument of science and, you know, facts and logic versus having faith hmm. and having an experience of of conversion and an experience of belief in God. and I, I think that what the Cohen brothers do here is really impressive. In that they they don't really give you an answer. They just kind of point out, look, here's here's what it's like to be somebody who has no faith and who belittles people of faith. And here's what it's like to be somebody who does have faith. Like you observe and decide for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, I
0: think it's honestly a really impressive movie in that regard. All right. So here's my big struggle with Cohen comedies. And I think it's probably why I love Raising Arizona so much, because. And you'll see this in a few days when we watch it, Brad. But Raising Arizona is just like a straight farce. Like it is ridiculous and silly, and it never stops being silly. And there are like some really heartwarming moments in it, but it's just a deeply silly film. And I feel like this movie's kind of silly too, but there's there's something about watching Cohen movies like post-Fargo, where they have all of the prestige and you can't tell if the Coen's are just kind of like laughing and like kind of giving a middle finger to the establishment and being like, oh, yeah, like you want us to make another Oscar winner here. We're going to make the big Lebowski now. And 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 you can't tell if it's like all a big joke or if they actually want to uh, try to say something deep with their comedies. And this is one of those films where it gets at these themes just enough that I can't tell if the movie's actually about those themes. Or if it's just a movie that is deeply silly and about being silly, that also happens to touch on deeper things. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that the deep things that they touch on are really
1: important. And they have they give the audience an opportunity to engage with them. In a way that doesn't shame anyone or make anybody feel bad. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what the comedic elements of this movie do. They, they give you a chance uh, for relief to let the steam off a little bit as you're kind of wrestling with what does it mean to be a person of faith in a world that is random and chaotic and, and sometimes cruel. Like honestly if if I had to compare it to something it kind of feels like the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible <laughs> where the the author of this book just continually comes back to like I don't know man everything is vanity everything is like vapor in the wind like you can't actually grab onto anything it's all fleeting and who knows and you're like yeah that's that's like the Cohen brothers
0: <laughs> in a, in a heartbeat They actually borrow really heavily from Ecclesiastes uh, and Job in in another one of their later films. So it's really funny to hear you mention that. But yeah, I guess that's part of what makes me struggle with this movie is that it is such a well-made movie. Like just from a production quality standpoint, it is, I mean, it's Roger Deakins' cinematography. It was the first major movie to use digital color grading after the fact. So like the sepia tone was added digitally. So like Roger Deakins, thanks a lot. You kicked off all this crappy color grading we have now, <laughs> but it's done so well. And it's like they're pulling from the the deepest bag of filmmaking tricks and not gimmicks, but like really, really intelligent, clever homages to old movies. And like they're using all of their directorial muscles. And so when I hold well, it up against like another comedy that I think is just kind of like deeply silly. Take a movie like, I don't know, like Anchorman. Anchorman is a really funny movie that's not really about much, and it's just meant to be funny. And at the end of the day, it's entertaining, and that's the point of that movie. And I think some of the aesthetics and the directorial choices and the editing reflect the fact that, like, let's not take this too seriously, you know? Mm-hmm. And now Adam McKay, the director, is off making Oscar-y movies. And it feels kind of like the Coen brothers are making... An Anchorman-ish movie in spirit, but like pumping all of the artistic and aesthetic qualities of their more serious movies into it at the same time. And so I watch it and I'm like, surely something with this production quality has a deeper meaning. And I don't know (laughs) if it does. (laughs) So that's why I'm, I'm really struggling to get my arms all the way around this. I think you're right. It touches on all those things. But is it actually about those things? Yes. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: I really do think it is, Bob. I, I think that they continually, in every single vignette, they touch on how Everett doesn't have faith, that he relies on his wit, on his intelligence, on his capabilities to get him through all situations. And yet, you know, Hogwallop and, and Delmar... They rely on just the goodwill of people and their newfound faith, and they seem to find their way through it. And in the end, the interesting thing, and this is what I think the Coen brothers are known for, it feels a little bit nihilistic, like they went on this long, long journey, and now they reach the end And Everett isn't getting what he wants. You know, he he still isn't able to get back with his wife because she is fickle and wants her her specific ring that's now at the bottom of the lake. Mm -hmm. And so I I think there's there's room for interpretation like the Coen brothers want there to be. But I I think that the entire
0: movie hinges on that idea of faith versus uh, logic and reason. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's move into our final segment for the day which we call Let's Make It a Double. This is where we pair the movie up with something else to make the perfect double feature. Brad, you've clearly been thinking more deeply about this movie than I have, so I'd really like to hear what are you going to pair this up with. Oh, I honestly... It would be so funny to hear you say, like, Martin Scorsese's silence. Like, (laughs) an examination (laughs) of faith in the world and how you acted out. Uh, Oh, that would be funny. All right, so you have not thought about this what you're saying. I I have not thought about this at all. All right. Here's mine. And it's like it's you got to squint to see it a little bit. But I was thinking about, like, what's another movie that has this kind of episodic nature? I think Forrest Gump kind of comes to mind. That's not my pick, though. But it reminds me of, like, you know, people weaving in and out of this person's life. A lot of times it's humorous. Mm -hmm. I just watched like a week ago the new Guillermo del Toro directed uh, adaptation of Pinocchio. Okay. And Pinocchio is kind of one of those stories where this little wooden boy wanders in and out of these crazy scenarios with, you know, uh, in the Disney version, like a giant duplicitous fox. And then this island where you turn into a jackass and go inside the mouth of a whale. And it all seems very mythic and it all seems very random. And there is definitely more of a moral to that story than I feel like there is to this story. But I couldn't shake the feeling. That the Disney version of Pinocchio with all of the songs that are sung and the moral guides, uh, it just kind of reminded me a little bit of like, you know, Jiminy Cricket is leading this kid through life the way that, you know, Dante is getting led through hell and George Clooney is getting led through Mississippi. So I'm going to go with the Disney (laughs) version of Pinocchio.
1: I'm in, man. I don't
0: know if I'll ever watch it, but sure. You've never seen Pinocchio? Well, I've seen the old one. That's what I'm talking about. The old, like the old Jiminy Cricket, Wish Upon a Star, 1940 Pinocchio.
1: Yep. Yeah. All right. I'm in then. Yeah. Pinocchio. For my make it a double, I'm going to stick in a very similar era.
0: I'm going to go with office space. I think you just paired something up with office space like five weeks ago. Did I? I don't. You at least compared something to office space. I can't remember exactly, but.
1: Okay. Anyway, well, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: To, we need to start keeping track of how many wins you have,
1: and we need to start <laughs> keeping track of our, let's make it a doubles, I guess. Yeah. All right. So let's hear, why Why, why office space? Honestly, because I feel like office space has the level of nihilism and dark comedy that makes it feel like it could be directed by the Coen brothers. Mm. I, I know that it's not directed by them. It's, it's uh, Mike judge, but that movie just feels dark and funny and has all sorts of similar one-liners and quick dialogue mm-hmm. that old oh, brother where I Thou has. And I, I think it'd be a good pairing. It would make for a really fun
0: night. I think I would watch office space first though right before we sat down to record, I said to you, I don't think this is going to be one of our longer episodes. Like, I don't know if we'll go a full hour on this. (laughs) And we're currently sitting right around 56 minutes. So, you know, this movie clearly had more to talk about than I thought it did, Brad. I remember when we first discussed this movie, this was one that you remembered from your childhood and that you had fond feelings for, even if it wasn't like, I love this movie, but you've always seemed surprised that I'm a bit cooler on it than you. And I don't dislike this movie. I really enjoy this movie. I just really struggle to find much there beneath the silliness. And that's not to say that you can't just have a silly movie. I love Monty Python. I love This Is Spinal Tap. But I
1: think they're this not movie... allowed to
0: look this good. <laughs> yes. I think this movie <laughs> straddles the line between like a movie with no point and a movie that's trying to have a really deep point. And so it doesn't do either one of those things super well. I think I enjoyed the hell out of it. I would give it like a seven and a half on the enjoyment scale. And I'm really struggling between seven and a half and an eight because the aesthetics like there's a shot in this movie where they toss a newspaper into a fire and it burns off the first page of the newspaper so Mm -hmm. that you can see what's written on the second page of the newspaper. And I'm like, how the hell did they do that? How did that scene work? Dude,
1: think about when they're, they jump on the, the little rail, car mm-hmm. that's being, you know, pushed. And then the camera, you know, when they're done talking to him, the camera just like sits there, slowly pans up. Mm-hmm. You've got this beautiful uh almost Wes Anderson-esque split, you know, right down the middle by <laughs> yeah, the railroad yeah. track. Just a gorgeous shot to
0: open the movie with. Yeah. It's a that beautiful I, like it's such a great film bomb. And so then I'm like, all right, maybe this is an 8. It's sitting at a 7.7 on IMDb, and I actually think that's, like, the perfect score. If I could give this, a, like, a quarter point, it'd be, like, a 7.75. For the sake of argument, I will give it an 8. I just think that I enjoyed it less than an 8.
1: Oh, man. I, I'll i give it an 8.5. Okay. I I think this is really one of my favorite comedies. That It's so well written. There's so many great little moments throughout that I. this is one that I will come back to over and over again.
0: I'm really excited for next week's movie. I've been building it up. I'm going to try to stop building it up in case Brad hates it because those are the worst weeks on film and whiskey. (laughs) But next week, we're checking out the Coen brothers, 1980s classic Raising Arizona, starring the one and only Nicolas Cage. I cannot wait, Brad. Bob, what have we done any Nicolas Cage movies? Oh, man. Is this our first like seriously? Is this our first Nick Cage movie? I think it is. I don't think we've ever done a Nicolas
1: Cage Oh, my gosh, dude. I'm so pumped now. (laughs)
0: This is so exciting.
1: Please tell me that you've seen the community episode where they have a class on Nicolas Cage at the community college. I
0: feel like you showed me that episode, didn't you?
1: Oh, I I hope that I have because it might be the best
0: examination of Nick Cage that has ever been done. All right. So we'll be back next week to watch Nicolas Cage for the first time on this podcast. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.
1: Whiskey Nation, do you ever think about awards? Of course you do. You drink whiskey and watch movies, which means that you know that nothing is validated until a group of random people say, hey, we love what you're doing. The awesome thing about Doc Swinson's whiskey is that it isn't just some group of schlubs that are giving them awards. They have been winning attention from some of the most important whiskey experts that you can imagine. They've been voted Best Distillery in Washington State by the New York International Spirits Competition. They've been voted the Best Independent Bottler by the Ascot Awards, as well as the Best Finished Bourbon from the Ascot Awards for their Lamenta Exploratory Cask. Their Exploratory Cask series is where they release some of the most fascinating and adventurous experiments. If you're ever checking out Doc's lineup and see a white label, there's a really good chance that that's the only time you'll see that bottle, so make sure you snatch it up. Doc's Winson's has been offering just phenomenal finished and blended whiskeys for quite some time now. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whisky.com.